Welcome to the Unmade Podcast, looking at media and marketing from an Australian perspective. I'm Tim Burrows. Recently, I published my first book, Media Unmade. It quickly became an Amazon bestseller. It's the story of Australian media's most disruptive decade. It's published by Hardy Grant, and you can buy it at all good bookshops and online. In the coming weeks, I'll be sharing the full audio edition of the book here on the Unmade podcast. Coming up is the next chapter. Now remember, only Unmade's paying subscribers get to hear every chapter. If you haven't already, you can sign up at unmade.media. As well as supporting my work as an independent journalist, you'll receive exclusive industry analysis in both written and podcast form. And once you sign up, you'll still be able to get our paid podcasts inside the app of your choice. It only takes a couple of clicks. Now, on with the book. Chapter 22. Polarising, Paying and Staying. In which News Corp shifts its focus away from advertisers towards subscribers as Sky News starts to look like Fox News, Rupert sells out to Disney, and James walks out, leaving a clear path for Lachlan. There is no news organisation more complicated or misunderstood than News Corp. It doesn't fully understand itself, so it's no wonder that the outside world doesn't either. How the company thought about itself and its place in the world became a little clearer when its executive chairman, Michael Miller, appeared on stage at the 2018 Mumbrella 360 conference in Sydney. Miller became the first person from a marketing background to run News Corp when he returned to the business from APN News and Media in November 2015. He had spent most of his career with news after joining as a marketing analyst in 1992. After 12 years in marketing roles, he became managing director of the company's Adelaide operation in 2004. Rising stars used to go through a tour of duty in Perth, Brisbane or Adelaide on their way up through the ranks. Miller had then taken charge of the company's New South Wales business before choosing to leave a year and a half into Kim Williams's tenure. When he returned, it seemed that one of the significant things about Miller's background was that his insights into how marketers think would inform how the organisation worked with its advertising clients. But it was more than that. Miller's arrival coincided with recognition within News Corp that the role of the company had flipped. It was no longer simply a news and entertainment company, but an organisation that existed to market news and entertainment to paying customers. It's a defining question for any media organisation. Who is your real customer? No matter what any commercial television network tells you about its viewers, the real customers, the ones the CEO gets out of bed thinking about first every day, are its advertisers. But News Corp's editors had always thought first about their readers, and now the management was beginning to as well. 
The key to understanding the company's direction came in the title of Miller's presentation, Persuading Audiences to Pay and Stay. In his speech, he signalled that while the company would always pursue advertising as one of its streams of revenue, it was no longer the biggest source. The future would be in asking the audience to pay for the company's content. Over the years, News Corp had already figured out how to get people to subscribe for TV services like Foxtel and to buy its printed newspapers and magazines. It was beginning to grow its digital subscriptions, although it was hard going. Despite that, the organising thought that it would depend on its paying audience was now the key to News Corp's approach to news. It wasn't enough to deliver the facts. They needed to be in a package that people would want to subscribe to, and that meant hard-hitting opinion. Central to these changes is our focus on maximising our audiences and their engagement, Miller told the Mumbrella 360 audience. Our greatest opportunity for growth at News Corp is to connect with the consumer's willingness to pay for content. Miller gave examples of how using data meant that the company had better insights into what audiences would pay for. In Sydney, they subscribed for crime, celebrity and court stories, he said. In Adelaide, it was the two local AFL teams. In Brisbane, private schools were big editorial business. And in Hobart, a series on powerful public servants had sold subscriptions. People will pay and stay with content that is about where they live, work and play, he went on. This is why we invest in local voices and local content and how we connect with our communities. Audiences are also drawn to and will pay for strong opinion. Opinion is about attitude and conviction, insight and analysis, wit and satire. Next came the line which more than any other summed up why News Corp is like it is. It can both polarise and unite. It never sits on the fence. The line nodded towards the biggest misunderstanding of News Corp. Polarised coverage is a part of its strategy because that's what it believes its paying readers want. A better route to subscribers, it concluded, was to offer something that half the public will love and half will hate and never buy, rather than a middle-of-the-road product. In the main, the company had pursued right-leaning audiences over the years. There had been exceptions, like the defunct Today newspaper in the UK, but not on the company's biggest mastheads. The reason has never really been about Rupert Murdoch's ideology. It was about business. Some of our opinion makers, like Petter Credlin, Andrew Bolt and Phil Rothfield, drive conversations and start debate said Miller. Their insights and commentary about politics, sport, issues and events are in high demand. Subscription data meant that the company knew exactly which columnists sold the most subscriptions on any given day, Miller revealed. He wouldn't give clues about who the biggest columnist was, but as I put various names to him on stage, 
he conceded that some weeks it was indeed the Herald Sun's provocative Andrew Bolt, polarising indeed. Credlin was part of the emerging phenomenon of the Sky News nighttime format. The channel had a complex history before it ended up completely in News Corp's hands. Its cousin Sky News UK, owned by satellite TV company B Sky B, which News Corp was the major shareholder in, had been the UK's first 24-7 news channel. It was constrained from going too far into commentary by the UK's broadcasting regulations around impartiality and accuracy, which are far stricter than those for Australian television. Sky News Australia was originally a three-way joint venture, with local content coming from Seven and Nine, and international coverage and an overnight feed from its sister station in the UK. It was initially a straight-down-the-middle news service, with CEO Angelus Frangiopoulos respected for offering a comprehensive service on a shoestring. The well-connected political editor David Spears and chief political reporter Kieran Gilbert made the channel the first destination when a major political story was breaking. Gradually, Sky News began to move away from its bulletin-based format in the evenings to what became known as Sky After Dark, when the facts gave way to opinion. Evenings became dominated by panel shows featuring overwhelmingly right-wing commentators such as Andrew Bolt and Paul Murray. Initially, there were also a few left-leading regulars for balance, like former New South Wales Labour Premier Christina Keneally. News Corp took full ownership of Sky News Australia only in late 2016, after buying out partners 9, 7 and B Sky B. The obvious question was whether Sky News was hoping to emulate the hugely influential US news channel Fox News, which was owned by the Murdoch-aligned 21st Century Fox. I asked Keneally that question during an audience Q&A at an industry event in October 2016, and whether there will be room for a channel like Fox News in Australia. We do have a particular style of analysis after 7pm, she acknowledged, and I don't think it's a bad thing. Our hosts are quite upfront about where they stand. And you don't tune in to Paul Murray thinking you're going to get one type of agenda, then be surprised when you get another. So there's always an audience that wants to engage with that type of content. So, would it have an audience? It probably would. Why wouldn't it? But it would obviously be much smaller. Frangiopoulos was replaced in October 2018 by Paul Whitaker, the pugnacious former editor of Sydney's Daily Telegraph, who had gone on to replace Chris Mitchell as editor-in-chief of The Australian. Whitaker took the commentary up another notch. The tenor of the evening and weekend lineup for Sky News would increasingly sound like its US cousin, Fox News. The daytime lineup would continue to be news-based, but from 5pm, the channel became more strident. Much of the talent came from the pool of News Corp newspaper commentators, including Chris Kenny, Sherry Markson and Peter Gleeson. Intellectual rigour was not what qualified them to be on air. Political operatives such as Petter Credlin, ex-liberal Corey Bernardi, and long-time Labour power broker Graham Richardson 
were also regulars. Sky News would also make a right-wing star of Paul Murray, who had parlayed a career as an affable journeyman radio host to the backbone nightly 9pm to 11pm show on Sky News. Weekends were most notable for outsiders, set up as counter-programming to the ABC's Insiders, which Spears later defected to in 2020. Outsiders started life in January 2017 with the trio of former adman Rowan Dean, former Labour leader Mark Latham and former Liberal MP Ross Cameron. They labelled themselves deplorables in a reference to Hillary Clinton's description of Donald Trump supporters. The first episode coincided with Trump's inauguration as US President. Outsiders set out to provoke from the beginning with Latham's first words, Trigger warning, trigger warning, viewers. You've entered a very unsafe space. We're the Outsiders, Australia's most politically incorrect news and current affairs show. The Washington elites have been routed. The left is in a deranged state of mind. And the great man himself, Donald Trump, sits safely in the Oval Office. The left-baiting Outsiders went through several controversies, including Latham being sacked as a co-host after just two months after mocking the sexuality of a schoolboy, and Cameron being sacked in November 2018 for racist comments after telling viewers, if you go to the Disneyland in Shanghai on any typical morning of the week, you'll see 20,000 black-haired, slanty-eyed, yellow-skinned Chinese desperate to get into Disneyland. The show also had to broadcast an apology to Greens politician Sarah Hansen-Young for airing smears about her sex life from on-air guest Liberal Democrat Senator David Lionhelm while Dean smirked on camera. Under Whitaker, Sky News' digital footprint became increasingly important. Back in February 2010, the network had stopped posting its content to YouTube in favour of streaming clips on its own website. But as the Google-owned platform cemented its position as the main source of video discovery, Sky News returned and signed formal agreements in August 2019 to monetize its content on YouTube and Facebook globally, while mostly withdrawing from Twitter. The deal gave Sky News international reach, with many of its videos pulling in millions of views. A Sky News Australia special report about claims that Chinese authorities had covered up the COVID outbreak pulled in more than 8 million views in just a few months, many from the US. By 2021, Sky News Australia's YouTube channel had accumulated more than 700 million views. The economics of news channels are different to those of newspapers, which have a direct relationship with each reader. In the US, Fox News was offered by cable TV providers to subscribers as part of a bundle of channels. Viewers did not choose to subscribe to it on its own. And 21st Century Fox would receive a few dollars for each viewer in long-running deals. Advertising was a secondary source of revenue. It was a similar story for Sky News in that viewers subscribed as part of a wider Foxtel package. There are also fewer links in the ownership chain 
as Foxtel was already half-owned by News Corp and half by Telstra. That became two-thirds owned by News in April 2018, when Foxtel merged with News Corp's Fox Sports. One of the reasons for focusing on subscriber revenues was a result of the new social media atmosphere. The campaign group Sleeping Giants Oz, which began tweeting in Australia in August 2017, had begun to take an interest in Sky News programming. Sleeping Giants' method of attack was asynchronous and all the more effective as a result. The anonymous Sleeping Giants Twitter account publicised lists of which brands advertised on shows that included content it deemed to be offensive and then urged supporters to challenge the brand's decision. The phrase brand safety was becoming a watchword for marketers and the idea of being on the wrong side of a Twitter pylon was unattractive. Some brands pledged to remove campaigns after simply being the subject of a tweet from Sleeping Giants. It took relatively little campaigning effort for a relatively big impact. Sky News commercial director Catherine Adams discussed Sleeping Giants in an interview with Mumbrella in June 2019. When Sleeping Giants emerged and they were driving such a hard campaign, we did have a couple of advertisers asking questions and wondering why they were being targeted. But in the last few months, the majority of our partners have started to really see those people for who they are, which is a small group of unverified yapping whingers who really only seem to value free speech as long as it's their speech, she claimed. Besides, rather than concerns about nervous advertisers, what was now most important to Sky News was whether its shows made Foxtel subscribers more likely to stick with the service. The subscription TV landscape was rapidly changing. For Foxtel, the days of pulling in an average revenue per subscriber of more than $100 per month were over. And thanks to the streaming services, Foxtel's subscription TV monopoly had ended too. The Foxtel IQ set-top box subscribers were still paying a premium but the company was forced to grit its teeth and start competing in the streaming space, even though each customer was worth much less. Foxtel launched sports offering KO in November 2018. Priced at $25 per month, KO offered the sports content available on Foxtel from the Fox Sports, ESPN and Be In sports channels. The only major code it lacked was English Premier League Soccer which was streamed on the Optus service. KO launched strongly, although it cannibalised previous Foxtel sports subscribers. The streaming market got even more crowded, with Disney Plus launching in Australia in November 2019. Then, in May 2020, Foxtel launched its own entertainment streaming service, Binge, priced at a competitive $10 per month. By the end of 2020, Roy Morgan Research estimated that 17.3 million Australians were watching at least one subscription video service. Netflix was most popular, reaching 14.2 million Australians. Next came Foxtel's various services, including IQ Box subscribers, along with Binge, KO and Foxtel Now, with a reach of 7.7 million. Nine's Stan was getting to 4.9 million Australians. 
And Roy Morgan Research estimated that Amazon Prime was ahead of Disney Plus, with reaches of 3.3 million and 2.9 million, respectively. Viacom CBS's subpar 10 All Access did not even figure in the data. Meanwhile, in the free streaming services, the ABC's iView service, which has no ads, remained the most popular, with 8.6 million Australians using it each month. Of the ad-supported offerings, SBS On Demand was top, with 4.1 million users. 7 Plus, 9 Now and 10 Play were all close together, reaching 2.7 million, 2.5 million and 2.3 million viewers, respectively, according to the research. After Miller's presentation, I interviewed him on stage and raised the shift away from advertising. He pointed out, where our business has changed, and for all media companies, the proportion of their revenue coming from consumers, not just advertisers, the balance is switching. For the Australian, the majority of our revenue will come from what consumers pay for, rather than what advertisers will pay for. But it's also happening for our regional papers and our community papers. The Australian was offering increasingly polarised content. In August 2016, the Australian's cartoonist Bill Leake drew a cartoon which attracted widespread condemnation. It featured an Indigenous police officer handing an Indigenous juvenile to his father and telling him, you'll have to sit down and talk to your son about personal responsibility. The father was shown responding, yeah, righto, what's his name then? The Australian Press Council, funded by the media industry, received more than 700 complaints, but shied away from making a ruling on whether the cartoon had broken its principles on the grounds that the Oz had published follow-up responses. It said, The best outcome in the public interest is to promote free speech and the contest of ideas through the publication of two major op-ed pieces in The Australian, providing Indigenous perspectives on the cartoon and shedding light on the underlying issues. With the agreement by The Australian to publish these items prominently, we believe that the complaints have been effectively resolved through an appropriate remedy and no further action will be taken. Leek died of a suspected heart attack a few months later. The longest pause during my Mumbrella 360 interview with Michael Miller came when I asked him, News Corp is pretty influential. Do you have too much power? Eventually, he carefully told the audience, Depending on the news of the day, I would say that we have a lot of responsibility. Being inside news, we're very conscious of that assertion that we may be too influential. It's not about volume, it's not about audience, it's really at the end of the day the message, and if you get the message right, the audience will follow you. They don't have to buy us, they don't have to consume us, they don't have to click on and pay for us. The fact that we continue to grow our audiences is a measurement to me that we are getting it right and that we are not misusing the role we play. The truth was that News Corp was immensely influential because politicians allowed it to be. Labour Prime Minister Kevin Rudd had flirted with the organisation until he fell out with it. 
In the coalition, Tony Abbott's team had been close to News Corp editors. Famously, in the month after his 2013 election win, he invited a group of News Corp editors and right-wing columnists for dinner and drinks at the PM's Sydney residence, Kirribilli House. His successor, Malcolm Turnbull, played the game, including delivering the changes to the media ownership laws, which all the big media owners had wanted. And under Scott Morrison's government, the support of the News Corp titles was a higher priority than perhaps any Prime Minister before him. As Christopher Warren, former Federal Secretary of Journalists Union, the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, put it in a piece for Crikey in 2020, News Corp has more than glommed on to a loyal political audience. It is now the voice of the Liberal Party. It's a reverse takeover. The Liberal Party is now little more than the political wing of News Corp. An example of how puppy dog keen the government was to keep News Corp on side was uncovered by the ABC using the Freedom of Information process to obtain internal correspondence from the government's Department of Communications and the Arts. During April 2020, the government had unveiled a package to help out the free-to-air TV and radio broadcasters during the COVID downturn, including giving them a rebate on their broadcasting licences. Foxtel was left out. It didn't pay for a broadcasting licence in the first place. Nonetheless, new Foxtel boss Patrick Delaney told the Australian Financial Review that he was disappointed with the outcome and wrote to Communications Minister Paul Fletcher that night with what sounded like a shopping list of demands. Anxious messages between public service staff when they realised that the government had inadvertently displeased Delaney and then raced to give his company some money too were illuminating. They showed a decision being rushed through Cabinet to release the last $7.5 million of a nebulous $30 million grant for Foxtel to televise underrepresented sports. The original $30 million grant had been controversial when it was included in the 2017 budget. One of the nervous internal communications read, The letter to Mr Delaney explains that while Foxtel has been granted regulatory concessions and is receiving additional grant funding, he is not receiving everything he requested in his 16th of April 2020 letter. Two days later the government decided to find another $10 million for Foxtel by extending the grant programme for another 12 months. But for all the common ground with the coalition government, News Corp's 2,500 journalists did not act according to one set of centralised instructions, regardless of what their critics believed. Individual editors set each newspaper's direction although those who shared the right-of-centre worldview of Rupert Murdoch were the ones who generally made fastest progress within the organisation. And there were days when all of the Metro mastheads had remarkably similar-looking front pages, if there was a big political story. News Corp would explain this as syndicated content across the group, while its critics would claim it was something more sinister. Not all of News Corp's senior journalists welcomed the march of the partisans. Paul Kelly, editor-at-large for The Australian, 
was one who recognised the risk of polarisation for society. In a frank interview with former Deputy PM and Nationals leader John Anderson in 2020, Kelly conceded, In terms of the way journalism has evolved in recent years, I've got to say that I tend to be more of a traditionalist. I don't think that being an activist and defining yourself as an activist is really equating to the traditions of journalism. And if you say that your task as a journalist is to see the world and interpret facts and events in one particular way to achieve one particular outcome, I don't think that's serving the public, and I don't think that's serving the ethics and traditions of journalism. Every media organisation has a political profile, there's no doubt about that. That's part of your editorial positioning. That's part of your business model. What this means, of course, is that it accentuates the polarisation in the community. There's no such thing as impartial media. There is no media organisation in the world that fits some sort of pure definition of impartiality. That doesn't exist. And the way the media professionals and the way the media managers run their organisation is based on a recognition that they have a political brand and that political brand is central to the support of their customers, their listeners, their viewers. The scrutiny on News Corp's power grew. Former PM Rudd campaigned for a royal commission. Although that was unsuccessful, despite a petition with half a million signatures, Green Senator Sarah Hanson-Young won support for a Senate inquiry into media diversity with a brief to explore News Corp's influence and its impact on democracy. It set a deadline of November 2021 for its report. Mouse in the House As he always did, Rupert Murdoch was already working on his next transformative deal. It was a blockbuster that would change the shape of the world's media. The logic for the process was the same as the one behind Murdoch's thwarted 21st Century Fox takeover bid for Time Warner back in 2014. In screen entertainment, content and scale were the two things that were really starting to matter. It was time to get bigger or get out. And this time, Rupert chose the latter. The process began at the end of 2017. For sale were most of the 21st century Fox film and TV assets involved in the creation of entertainment content, including 20th century Fox Studios, 20th century Fox Television, Star India and the company's stake in Sky which had changed its name from B-Sky B in 2015. Other than Fox Studios in Sydney, the Australian assets were not for sale. They sat inside sister company News Corp. It became an auction between the Walt Disney Company and Comcast. Disney was plotting the launch of the Disney Plus streaming service and keen to get its hands on the 21st Century Fox archive of content along with rights to superhero franchises such as X-Men and Fantastic Four. Comcast, parent company of NBC Universal, had the same motivation, ahead of the eventual launch of its streaming service, Peacock. The competition between Disney and Comcast was good for Murdoch, 
driving up the price from Disney's initial bid of $52.4 billion to $65 billion from Comcast, eventually to a winning bid of $71.3 billion from Disney. Helpfully for the deal, AT&T was given permission in June 2018 to buy Time Warner, which removed concerns that regulators would block a takeover of 21st Century Fox on competition grounds. The deal was completed in March 2019, with Murdoch taking his payout in Disney shares. Forbes estimated that his family's slice of the deal would be worth around $10.5 billion. He would be Disney's second largest shareholder, with a stake of roughly 4.4% of the company. Over the next two years, the value of those shares would rise by 70%. On top of that, the Murdoch family would stay involved in news and broadcasting, with the Fox TV network and Fox News being moved into the newly created entity, Fox Corporation. The management announcement for Fox Corporation gave a clue about which way the wind was blowing for family succession plans. Rupert was named chairman and Lachlan Murdoch, CEO and executive chairman. For the first time, Lachlan had, on paper at least, more responsibility than his father, who had just turned 87. While the Disney deal was going on, Rupert Murdoch had suffered a serious injury, tripping over in the night while on board Lachlan's yacht with his fourth wife, former supermodel Jerry Hall. He suffered broken vertebrae and a spinal hematoma, and needed surgery. The New York Times later reported, Hall called his adult children in a panic, urging them to come to California, prepared to make peace with their father. Back in 2009, Murdoch was interviewed on Sky News by David Spears. Towards the end of the conversation, Spears boldly asked, what is going to happen if you do go under a bus? Well, The directors of News Corp will have to make that decision, replied Murdoch. But the family, which is now the Children's Trust, which the six kids are in, and the four adults, with 40% of the vote, will have a lot of say. I'm sure one of them will emerge. The 40% Murdoch was referring to was the family's 38.4% share of the Class B voting shares in the company, which gave them effective control despite owning a far smaller percentage of the more widely traded Class A shares, which had almost no voting rights. He was also referring to the complicated family arrangement that would decide the ownership and direction of the company after his death. Rupert's oldest child is Prudence, born to his first wife, Patricia Booker, in 1958. She's the only adult sibling not to be heavily involved in the media. Rupert's second wife, Anna Maria Torv, is mother of Elizabeth Lachlan and James, who were born in 1968, 1971 and 1972, respectively. All three of them had worked for the organisation, although Elizabeth struck out on her own relatively early in her career and went on to found production company Shine in 2001, which was bought by News Corp in 2011. And later came Grace and Chloe, born to Murdoch's third wife, Wendy Deng, in 2001 and 2003. 
There were two dimensions to the succession question. One was the fundamental one of who would run the business. With both James and Lachlan heavily involved, that was up for grabs. But the other one, the bigger one, was once Rupert Murdoch no longer had a veto, care of the fact that he has four votes, which matches one each to the four voting children, how would the siblings vote their shares on the future direction of the company? In August 2020, James helped answer the first question and throw the second one wide open. He resigned from the board with the statement, My resignation is due to disagreements over certain editorial content published by the company's news outlets and certain other strategic decisions. The reference was widely taken to mean he was uncomfortable with the level of polarisation Fox News had been creating in US society through its dogged support of Donald Trump. James was far more moderate than Lachlan, who broadly shared his father's politics. James's exit would leave Lachlan as the undisputed heir of the company's leadership. But once Rupert was gone, Lachlan could still be outvoted by his siblings on the company's strategy. Not that Rupert had any intention of going anywhere. His mother lived until the age of 103, and he intended to outlast her. However, he did begin to dial things back, with a typical day in the office being more likely to amount to reading his own newspapers than being involved in day-to-day strategy. A sign that he was loosening his hold came on the 11th of March 2021, the day he celebrated his 90th birthday. It was largely a family affair rather than a company one. Nonetheless, Murdoch still had his edge. A few weeks before his birthday, he released a video to acknowledge a Lifetime Achievement Award in the UK. With a $60 bottle of Cabernet Sauvignon from award sponsor Yolumba prominently beside him, Murdoch railed once more against political correctness. For those of us in media, there's a real challenge to confront. A wave of censorship that seems to silence conversation, to silence debates and to ultimately stop individuals and societies from realising their potential. This rigidly enforced conformity, aided and abetted by so-called social media, is a straitjacket on sensibility. Too many people have fought too hard in too many places for freedom of speech to be suppressed by this awful woke orthodoxy. And he acknowledged, a Lifetime Achievement Award does have an air of finality, almost of closure, but I can assure you there are many goals still to come and challenges to overcome. I'm far from done. That was the latest chapter of my narration of my book, Media Unmade. You can buy the book online and at all good bookstores. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, if you want to hear all future chapters, you'll need to be a paying subscriber of Unmade. You can sign up at unmade.media. That's the URL, simply unmade.media. Once you do, it only takes a couple of clicks to add the paid-for feed to the podcast app of your choice. The book was written and recorded in northwest Tasmania on the land of the Palawa people. This podcast is produced with the enthusiastic help of Abe's Audio. 
For voiceovers and audio production, from corporate to commercial, go to abesaudio.com.au. I'll be back with the next chapter soon. Toodle pip.